All right. Uh, at the beginning of every class, I like to say, let's remember that we're studying things with eternal consequences. And so if you find anything I'm teaching tonight to be an error, or maybe I misspoke, please bring that to my attention. We are studying together, and it's things that are serious. And so let's fulfill that responsibility that we have to each other. We talked last week about 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we got all the way up to verse 47 through 52. Uh, We didn't cover that section, so we'll touch on that briefly tonight. But in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we have Jonathan and his armor bearer going up and defeating a garrison of the Philistines. Saul and the forces hear about uh, what all's going on there, the loud noise from the confusion that he's creating, and they go and they defeat the Philistines there. And then Saul wants to run them down, right? He wants to run them down, and so he has the people enter into a foolish vow, and uh, that causes them to, to be tempted to sin, and Saul has to address that. In verse 47 through 52, we have this section that talks about kind of a brief summary of Saul's reign. It talks about during the time of Saul, in verse 42, when the, he's taken over the kingdom of Israel... He's fought, uh, he fights against his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. Verse 48, he acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Talks about his family members in verse 49. I think there's an interesting point to be made here. Saul is, as far as I know, the only king of Israel that has one wife. No concubines or anything like that. Uh, So he did fulfill that part of the law, small though it may be in the grand scheme of things. Um, Maybe he thought having a new kingdom was enough. He didn't need all the other extra problems, right? Okay, maybe. But uh, I thought that was interesting. In verse 52, though, it talks about Saul and and a, a point that Saul made during the time of his kingdom. Whenever he saw any mighty man or valiant man, he attached him to his staff. And that fulfills uh, what Samuel told the people. They would have this king that would be like the other nations, and their sons and daughters he would take for himself. So Saul sees someone that has some skills that he wants, he takes them. He attaches them to his his staff, right? He sees someone who's valiant, someone that's mighty in, in war, he takes them. They get appointed to his group, right? He takes them away from their families. And, and uh, attaches them to his, his entourage, his, his staff there. And that's important to note because Saul will continue to do this, and this will have an impact, as we see in chapter 16, on David. Okay, so that's all I wanted to mention from the end of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Any comments on that section there? Okay. So let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 begins with Samuel, right? Samuel has something to say to Saul. And the Lord uh, sent Samuel to Saul for a very specific reason. What's our, our first question uh, in, our, in our questions here? It says, what's the Lord's command concerning the Amalekites? Destroy Utterly destroy them, right? Okay, I heard some people say that. Utterly destroy them, destroy them all, right? We, um, we see here in verse 15, uh, first Samuel starts off by setting out Who's in charge, right? Who's this command coming from? Well, it's, it's coming from the one that put you into power, Saul. Right? The Lord anointed you, sent me to anoint you as king over, not your people, his people, right? The Lord's people. 
And now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. The Lord of hosts, in verse 2, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul is going to go punish these people, and he's going to utterly destroy them. Do you, is anything left out there? Uh, let's see, verse 3, have we covered everything? Yeah, it's pretty specific, right? Man and woman, child and infant, right? And then you have all the animals, right? Ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. There we go. Okay. We're pretty inclusive in the destruction here, right? Um, and so that, that idea of utterly destroy, it's, it's even defined Right? It's expanded upon here. Um, so you can't say that God wasn't thorough in his command. Right, God is always complete in his commands to us. And so Samuel delivers this command from the Lord. And so verse 4, we have Saul summoning the people and numbering them. I, you know, Saul didn't write numbers, but man, he sure did a lot of counting. Right? Um, he numbers the people constantly. Now we're up to how many soldiers in Saul's army? We have 200,000 from Israel, 10,000 from Judah, right? So we have, we're, we're a lot more than the 600 that we had last chapter, right? We've, we've increased our forces again. And in, in verse uh, 5, Saul comes to the city of Amalek and sets an ambush in the valley. Verse 6, he speaks to a specific people, the Kenites, and he tells them they need to do what? They need to leave. Why do the Kenites need to leave? I mean, they're not Amalekites. That's true. Who are the Kenites? Yeah, they're relatives, right? They're, they're descendants of Moses' father-in-law. Uh, in Judges chapter 1, verse 16, it talks about them settling in the land. Um, this is also part of a fulfillment of the prophecy of Balaam uh, that we touched on briefly in Numbers. Balaam makes a prophecy. Part of that prophecy is that the, the Kenites would endure They would endure. So they're not part of this destruction uh, that's going to come about upon the Amalekites. Uh, So Saul, whether it's intentional or whether it's providential, Saul tells the Kenites to leave. And so the Kenites, they they depart. They depart from among the Amalekites. Now, you know, if I was the Amalekites and I saw this group of people just leaving, I might be a little curious uh, to know what's going on. Um, But the Kenites leave, and then verse 7, Saul defeats the Amalekites um, from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captures Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But in verse 9, Saul and the people spare Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed." Saul defeats the Amalekites, kind of following God's command, right? He defeats the Amalekites. That's not in question, right? Uh, What also doesn't seem to be in question is, did he kill the women, children, infants? I mean, as far as we know, he just spared Agag, you know, as far as we know. Uh, Everything else he utterly destroyed. Okay, so he utterly destroyed them. But he also, they saved the sheep, the oxen the good stuff, they kept that. 
But everything else we utterly destroy, right? <clears throat> um, question number two. What did Saul and the people do? Did they follow the commander? did they not? No, right? The answer is no. Did they follow the command to utterly destroy the Amalekites? No, they did not. So in verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, and now we're going to have the confrontation, right? There's going to be a confrontation between Samuel and Saul concerning this, concerning his disobedience uh, in this command. But the word of the Lord is the one that comes to Samuel in verse 10, and the Lord says in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12, Samuel rises early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told that he went to Carmel, and what did he do in Carmel? What did Saul do in Carmel? Sets a monument up to himself. How is Saul feeling about this? I mean, he feels pretty good, right? He had a victory against the Amalekites. He, quote unquote, utterly destroyed them. Had this great victory. Uh, you know, okay, I'm doing great as first king of Israel, right? So let's make a monument to me. And then he leaves and he goes to Gilgal. So... When, he gets to, uh, when Samuel gets to Saul, Saul sees him, and how's Saul's reaction to Samuel? He's excited. Saul, hey, or Samuel, hey. You know, it's very reminiscent of, you know, a few chapters ago, <laughs> right? Uh, why did you offer the sacrifice? Oh, Samuel, hey, we're doing the sacrifices. Come on in, yeah. Um, right? He doesn't understand that he hasn't fulfilled the command of the Lord, right? He, he, that's not in his mind. From his perspective, he's fine. He's done everything that the Lord wanted. He's doing it right, right? And so he doesn't have any reason to fear Samuel coming to him uh, or to expect any kind of confrontation. He sees Samuel and he says, blessed are you the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. I did it. We did it, Samuel. Woohoo! Right? Um, but what does Samuel have to say? Yeah, why, if you did it, why do I hear sheep and oxen? That doesn't make sense with the command, right? The command was to utterly destroy, and part of that list, remember we list everything out, part of that list was sheep and oxen, right? So would you hear them? Ah, I mean, <laughs> not if they didn't have them with them, right? What is this uh, bleeding of the sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen? What does this tell me, this, this initial reaction of Saul to Samuel coming? What it tells me is you can feel really good about things that you've done, but that doesn't make them right. Right? You, can, you can feel really good. You know, I feel good. We defeated the Amalekites. We saved Israel from all this oppression. We, we've delivered this punishment that the Lord has given us to deliver, to judge them for how they mistreated us when we were coming up out of Egypt. We have fulfilled this command. I feel good about it. But 
he didn't fulfill the command, right? It didn't, his, his feelings about it didn't change the reality of the situation. It didn't all of a sudden make it, well, you know, oh, but you feel good about it, so I guess it must be okay, right? His feelings didn't change the, the truth. You know, <clears throat> Saul has an answer, right? Saul has an answer when Samuel says, what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? Saul says, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But everything else we utterly destroyed, right? We saved all this stuff because we're going to make a sacrifice to you, to the Lord, right? We're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. So that, that makes it, that doesn't make it okay. And, and here it doesn't seem like Saul still, he still doesn't understand what, what Samuel's trying to say, right? He still doesn't see himself as not fulfilling the command. At this point in time, Saul thinks he's, he's done it. He thinks he's righteous. Um, I, I have to feel for Samuel uh, being in this position, an older man who's having to deliver this message to Saul, who he anointed as king, and who is, I don't know, self-deluded at this point, um, so off the mark that when he's pointing these, these specific things out to him, he's still not understanding, right? Still not getting it. But this, this conversation between Samuel and Saul, I think, is very important for us because a lot of times this conversation, this conversation happens between us and maybe uh, a fellow brother or sister who's trying to convince us or show us where we have fallen short. Maybe it happens between ourselves where we're having this argument with ourselves about, well, no, I shouldn't do this. Well, but if you do, maybe this good thing will happen. But, well, no, but I really, really shouldn't do this. Well, but if you ignore this part about it that's bad, then maybe it'll be okay. You know? We're not that far removed sometimes from this idea of, you know, or this, this picture presented here of Samuel and, and Saul. Yes? This is um, not, not no different than today in the religious world. They'll say, oh, well, we may not do everything the Bible says, but, you know, look, we, we help the poor. We do this. We do that. So our good deeds make up for the fact we don't follow what the Bible says. And Saul thought because he saved it for God that it was going to excuse his sinful behavior. And you're going to find out that doesn't. And, you know, that's like people who who skip skip verses and try to make things look and seem pleasing to the ear. But the truth of the matter is, God already said, you don't do my commandments, you will not go to heaven. And, you know, these, I, I've been to churches, or, or even around town, these mega churches and everything, and they say, well, we may not do it this way, or we may add, or we may do this, but it's still the same thing. And I'm like, mm, it's not. Mm-hmm. And what's so, so sad is so many people believe they're doing the right thing, and they're not. Right. It, I, I was going exactly where you, were, where you brought us to, Leanne. The, the idea in the religious world today oftentimes is emphasized on feelings and emotion and 
You know, how does it make you feel? Well, if it makes you feel good, then it has to be true. Our emotions are not grounded in truth. Our emotions are fickle. They move about and they betray us on a regular basis, right? God's word is founded in truth. What the word says cannot be changed by how it makes you feel or by, you know, the, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. So maybe I shouldn't do that. No, if God's word says we have to do it, then we have to do it. Um, that idea that, well, I'm going to do it mostly and, and convince yourself that you have completed the, the command is where oftentimes we see in the religious world today them getting it wrong, right? Uh, we'll, we'll get close, right? Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week? Well, we do that because how many first days are in a week? One, right? How many... First days of the week are in a year. Well, every time there's a week, there's a first day. So when should we partake of the Lord's Supper? Should we do it three times? No, right? It, it's, it, you have to fulfill the command. The command is the first day of the week. Okay, if there's a first day of the week, that's when I do it, right? Every first day of the week. It's, it's not that hard to understand, but then we try to justify our actions, well, but it's hard sometimes for people. And, and well, but then I lose, it loses its meaning. Well, and then it doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. So I feel better if I do it every other first day of the week. Well, then you're not fulfilling the command, right? You're not fulfilling the command. Your feelings about it don't change the reality of the command. Um, Samuel in verse 16 is done with the excuses. He's done with Saul's political games of, well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't me. It was, you know, we destroyed everything. We did, Samuel, we really did. And in verse 16, Samuel says to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. So I want us to understand this. This is not just a accusation that Samuel has against Saul, because Samuel saw that oh, wait, there's sheep here, and there's oxen here, and uh, what, what's going on? No, this is something that the Lord determined was Saul not following his command, right? That's verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and told him these things. So it's not up to Samuel's opinion. It's not Samuel's, you know, just his prejudice against Saul, uh, because of their previous bad interactions? No, this is from the Lord, and Samuel is just the messenger delivering this command. Now, Samuel cares very deeply about this, right? It, it bothered him. He was awake all night crying to the Lord because of this situation. He's greatly distressed. And when he comes to Saul and he makes the accusation, and I mean, I think what he wants is what we find David doing later, which is, Falling to the ground, admitting your sin, and showing repentance, right? Wanting to change. But instead, what he gets from Saul is he gets a man who is saying, well, no, I did it. I don't know what you're talking about. I did it. Well, but there's sheep over here, and there's oxen over here from the Amalekites. No, but yeah, I know, but I did it. I did the command anyway. Um, and that would, that would be frustrating. Samuel here is done in verse... Uh, Verse 16, he says, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Verse 17, he says, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. 
And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You're done explaining it now, Saul. I have to tell you some things. The Lord told me that you you did not fulfill this command, right? But it was you who were so humble at the beginning. You thought so little of yourself, and now your pride has caused you to do this, right? Seems to be Samuel's accusation here. What does Saul respond in verse 20? What do you mean? (laughs) I did it. I killed everything except for those sheep over there and the king Agag and this over here. Yeah, he gives more excuses. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went up on a mission on which the Lord sent me and it brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil and sheep and oxen and the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Question number three, who is to blame, right? Okay, now we're going to play the blame game, all right? So Saul says, no, I did it. I destroyed everything, even though he does admit that he did not because he says he's the one who took Agag, king of Amalek, and brought him back. So there you go, Saul. You're proving yourself a liar here. But, in spite of that, who's the ones who actually saved all the oxen and sheep and everything? Well, he says it's the people. It was the people who did that. So, who's to blame? Saul's king. Yeah, but he's just one man. How can he stop all these people? Here's the real question, though. Does it matter? No. Right? No is the answer. Does who's to blame keep you from being uh, responsible for fulfilling the total command that the Lord gave you, Saul, in, in fulfilling? Right? N- no. Right? If some of the people took some of the oxen and the sheep and things, then whatever people were listening to you, Saul, should have gone through and wiped them out anyway. Right? If the command is to utterly destroy, you find a way and you make it happen, even if the people are going to rebel, right? But no, Saul wants to play the blame game. Yes? I think there's a big big lesson on uh, how to react when you mess up in this story, and it's, it's really the biggest difference to me between... David and Saul is how they react when they mess up. All of us mess up. And the lesson is what do you do when you mess up? And so Saul's reaction was to avoid personal responsibility and try to push it off on somebody else. But you remember when Nathan confronted David about his sin, his reaction was was different than that. He immediately said, I've sinned. And then when you read in Psalm 51... How did he react? He said, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And so that was his attitude. So I think there's a big lesson for all of us in in what do we do when we mess up because all of us do. And so the immediate response should be 
what David did, and that's why he was a man after God's own heart, is because of his attitude and what he did when he messed up. And Saul just just didn't take that same course. Right. We have you have two different ideas here. You have the the pride of Saul, which blinds him to his actions and the commands of God, and then you have the humility of David that allows him to see where he's transgressed, admit that, and then make the change, right? But we have to do that too, right? We can't think that we're infallible or that we are incapable of making a mistake or making an error. No, if, you know, I have studied for this lesson for a long time, but I could say something wrong tonight. I could do it. Why? Because I'm a man. I make mistakes. I get distracted, right? Something could happen. I might have put it in my notes wrong, wrote something backwards. Who knows? But yeah, we're not infallible. We all make mistakes. We have to be able to look at the command and then look at our actions and see if those two match up. And then admit if they don't, right? Admit if they don't and make the change. And, and that's what's so sad in this scenario. You have Samuel who's trying, I mean, he's pointed it out three different times now, pretty plainly. And Saul just is refusing, whether because of his own self-delusion or because of his pride or whatever it may be, he's refusing to admit that he maybe possibly did not fulfill the command of the Lord. Yes? I think it's interesting to note, too, that the comparison of Saul to, to David and David falling down and, and worshiping God. And every turn, every time David spoke, to God, he, he was, he's like, you are my God. Where Saul, right now, he says, uh, in verse 15, he, he says, uh, uh, the sacrifice to the Lord your God. He doesn't even claim God as his own. He, he's, it, Samuel, this is your God. Yeah. And, and he just had stepped so far out away from God that he, he, uh, he made himself a God, basically. And I, I think it's okay to... He, you know, he may have said to himself, I, it, it's okay. Uh, I did obey, but he didn't obey. But, yeah. but he didn't see God as his God. It was as your God, Sam. Right. And it's, a, it's it, you know, you kind of think of it in that, you know, where Samuel brings it up. You started out at this one place, right? You started out so humble, but now it's, it seems like this power has corrupted you to the point where you have this pride in you that is, is putting yourself in that place, right? In that place of God. I, I think that idea of, you know, power corrupting absolutely is a, is a danger, right? It's a danger. But power does not inherently corrupt people to the point where they, they sin, right? Power is just, it's a thing that people have or they don't have. But it doesn't affect your actions, right? You're the one who determines what actions you are going to make. There have been examples in the Bible of men of power that fulfilled God's command and followed through on those things. Right? But Saul here is, is fulfilling the prophecy that Samuel gave in that when the people demanded a king, the Lord said they would get what they wanted and what they asked, which is, what, which is a king after the nations around them, right? a king like those nations. And that's what they're getting here, right? a king that puts his own authority above the Lord's, that takes whatever he wants and... You know, doesn't make any excuses about it that when he's confronted, okay, well, no, you know, all right, maybe somebody else made a mistake, but it can't be me because I'm the king. But, you know, that's, that's what the people got is what they asked for, really. Um, <clears throat> I did obey the voice of the Lord. The people took some of the spoil. 
Blame does not remove responsibility from any party, right? I don't know why we as mankind seem to have this this desire to throw blame around and to say, well, oh yeah, well, they did it first and so then they did it, but it really started here. It's this person's problem. That never ends arguments. It never solves problems. It never... You know, brings anything to a conclusion that is, is going to end well. Uh, identifying a problem, identifying a source of a problem, sure, that's important so that it can be corrected and corrected appropriately, right? If you don't correct the appropriate issue uh, with whatever you're talking about, your health or you know, technology or whatever it might be, then that issue may persist, right? If you don't fix the computer virus, where it's actually a problem, it'll keep going, right? It'll keep happening. So, yes, you need to identify the problem. But pointing fingers isn't really identifying the problem, right? It's wanting you to, okay, don't focus on me and what I did wrong. Focus on this person and what they did wrong, right? It's a distraction technique. And we don't need to be distracted. We need to be focused and intentional in our relationship with the Lord, Right? If we have made a mistake, if we have sinned, then we need to fix it, whatever that problem might be. Right? We need to address it. Why? Because you know, there's a problem between me and this other person? Yes. But also, more importantly, because there's a problem now between you and the Lord. One of those problems is going to cost you a relationship here on earth. The other problem is going to cost you your eternal salvation. Why not fix it and save both? Right? Instead of pointing back and forth and playing the blame game. I don't know why we get fixated on blame, but for some reason it's something that we seem to do. Awareness seems to help, right? Samuel gives Saul the the point, the lesson he needs to learn in verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. This is going to be, it's going to come up again, right? This, this section here where Samuel is explaining to Saul that what does the Lord want? The Lord wants your obedience, right? Why is obedience greater than sacrifice? has to do with your attitude of heart. Are you going to miss the sacrifices if you're obedient to the Lord? No, right? One follows the other, right? Obedience to the commands of the Lord would have you fulfill his commands, which would include those sacrifices. But you would do them the right way and at the right time and not find your own way in your own time, right? This idea that rebellion and insubordination being as of the sin of divination and idolatry, you are replacing God and his will with something else. And often that's your will, right? That's your will. That's what you want. That's what you're looking for. And that would be the same as replacing God with an idol, right? And, and bowing down to an idol to follow whatever it, quote unquote, tells you to do. <clears throat> because of this, the Lord has rejected Saul from being king. Now, is this the first time... Uh, Saul's been told this. 
No, right? It happened before, a couple chapters ago, when he disobeyed the Lord that time, right? He disobeyed the Lord then, he offered the sacrifice, he couldn't wait, and so the kingdom was taken away. Well, now it's told to him again. The Lord has rejected you, right? You have been rejected because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Similarly, we can end up in the same position. Right? If we reject the word of the Lord, if we put ourselves first, if we follow our will before the Lord's, we don't fulfill the commands as they have been given, but as we determine or define or whatever. Right? This word, utterly destroy, this phrase, utterly destroyed, has been thrown around several different times by Samuel and by Saul. And you can tell just from the context that what they're describing are very different things. Right? Saul's term for utterly destroy includes some things and then doesn't include some other things, right? He's talking about, in a very specific sense, we utterly destroyed these specific things that I'm listing in my head right now, but not telling to you, Samuel, right? When Samuel used, and the Lord used the word utterly destroy, they meant everything, right? As it was defined to Saul at that moment. We cannot... Take the Lord's commands and insert our own definition in place of what the Lord intended. If we do, then we're no longer fulfilling the Lord's commands, but we are now fulfilling our twisted, messed up version of the Lord's commands, which are not the Lord's commands. They're ours at that point, right? We've taken it, we've adapted it to whatever we wanted, and then we implement it. And that makes it ours at that point, right? Um. That's not following after the Lord. That's, again, insubordination, rebellion, idolatry, um, not following after the Lord. Yes, sir. Like Proverbs 3, 5, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Seems applicable here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a simple idea, and yet this, this problem permeates throughout you know, all, uh, you know, false teaching, false doctrine, uh, you know, other religions, other denominations. I mean, you find it everywhere where someone takes something, they think this is a good idea and they change it and apply it and make it happen. And then we take this and we think that's a good idea and we change it and we apply it and we make it happen. And everything, you know, keeps compounding and compounding until what you end up with is nowhere near what you started Uh, Samuel or Saul finally in verse 24 says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Verse 25. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Okay. Saul said he was sorry. What does that mean? Well, if you continue on verse 26, Samuel says, no. Saul says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. I sinned. I transgressed. Okay, I admit it. I did it wrong. Um, But I I didn't follow your words or the word of the Lord. I feared the people. I listened to their voice. So come with me and and then I'll worship with the Lord and everything will be okay. Samuel says, no, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord's rejected you, right? He repeats the end of verse 23. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you. I'm not going to put on a show for you and the people 
so that everything will be fine in your world, right? I like in verse, uh, you know, Samuel, go, he's just going to leave. He's just going to go. Saul grabs the edge of his robe and tears it. Verse 28 and 29. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul, you are king of Israel, but you cannot bargain or talk your way out of this judgment of the Lord. The Lord is not a man that you can persuade and sway like the people of Israel to try and move wherever you want them to go. No, the Lord is God. He is all powerful. He put you in charge. He will remove you and he will give it to your neighbor who is better than you. I think it's understandable that from this point on, Saul is always on the lookout for someone to take what he has. And it's because of this, right? Because of this. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. And what he has decided is that he will take what you have and give it to your neighbor because he's better than you. And you're talking about a man who, when he was told he was going to be king, was given all these different prophecies, and he saw those things occur. Right? He didn't believe that he was going to be chosen as king, and so the Lord gave him these signs. These signs were given from Samuel to prove to him that he was chosen and anointed from the Lord to be king. And those things happened. And then when they went to anoint the king... He knew what was coming, right? He knew that he was the one who was going to be chosen. That's why he hid himself. He knew. And so when Samuel gives this declaration and says, the Lord has torn this kingdom from you and is giving it to another, he knows what that means, right? He knows this comment that God does not lie. He knows that point that if the Lord has said it, it will happen. He knows that it was proven to him already. But... Again, verse 30, he says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. Go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Again, still not acknowledging that it's his God, still not acknowledging that. It's your God, Samuel. I sinned. I didn't do it right. Okay, but still, please just come with me and do the things that we need to do for the kingdom's sake so that I can be in good standing with the people. And Samuel goes and Saul worships the Lord. Have they fulfilled the, va- uh, the, the utter destruction of the Amalekites up to this point still? No. no, right? We're still talking with Samuel. Saul is still talking with Samuel. At any point in time in this conversation, Saul could have said, you know, fallen down, torn his robes, said, I have sinned. Go slaughter everything, right? Send the people out and slaughter them. Kill Agag. Destroy the Amalekites utterly as we should have done before. And then beg Samuel, you know, to pray for him and and for his repentance. But he doesn't do it, right? He just wants Samuel to go with him so that he'll look good in front of the people. This has got to be really, really hard for Samuel, who was there when the people rejected the Lord and wanted a king. He was... You know, torn apart by that, and then he goes and anoints Saul and 
you know, the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and, okay, I'm fulfilling the word of the Lord. He warns the people still, you know, this is a rejection of God, but this is what you wanted. So this is what we get. And then maybe he was lifted up a little bit when that first attack with Nahash and Saul is, has the spirit of the Lord and he goes out and he gives deliverance and he gives that victory to the Lord. He tells the people the Lord delivered them that day. You know, that, that probably would have been encouraging to see in this, you know, as far as a, a new king and, and where you expected it to go when he's going to lead the nation. But then you get to the point where Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel to offer this sacrifice and he doesn't. He just does it. You get later where he has the people fulfill a, or hold on to a vow that leads them into temptation. You come here where he's given a direct command from the Lord that's very specific And he ignores it. He does what he wants anyway. And then when he's confronted with that, very plain wording. It's not a complicated idea. It's not a complicated thought. When he's confronted with the reality of what he's done, he refuses to see it. And he just totally rejects the word of the Lord. And so Samuel comes back. Uh, following Saul, Saul worships the Lord. Verse 32, Samuel does the job Saul was supposed to. Samuel says, bring Agag here. They bring him. Verse 33, your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And he hews him to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And then Samuel leaves. Saul goes back to his house, and Samuel never sees Saul again. What a, a sad picture here to end this chapter. Right? You have a king that's rejected the Lord. You have Samuel who has rejected the king as the Lord has. And, and it's just sad. it seems so sad. Verse 16, or chapter 16 begins with the Lord coming to Samuel and saying, how long are you going to grieve? I chose somebody else. Let's go anoint that person. And so they come up with a ruse in verses 2 through 5 to get by Saul. And verse 6 through 13, you have all these different sons of Jesse coming before Samuel. And Samuel is going to anoint one of them as king. And he's looking for certain things. And he sees what he saw when he first saw Saul, right? You see somebody who's good looking, who seems like they should fit the role. And the Lord says, no, that's not my guy. The Lord chooses David because of verse 7. He does not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, but because, uh, because the Lord looks at the at the heart, right? And the interesting thing about that is what does it say about David's looks and stature? He was good looking, right? That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, good looking, bad looking, God, nope, that's not what he's looking at. He's looking at his heart, right? What does his heart say? What does his heart look like? And then uh, verse 14 through 23, you have Saul now plagued. He can't find relief except with this music. And I think Saul is plagued. It says with an evil spirit from the Lord. You, you think about that idea that you've been confronted and shown your wickedness and your shortcomings. And you've been told that someone else is going to get all these things that you have. That guilt and that weight of the pressure of what's coming would eat you up. Right? And Saul is only appeased with this music. And so they say, hey, go, go hire somebody. Go, we got to bring somebody in. And so who do they pick? Well, as Saul, we, told, we were told earlier, Saul picks the best. And the best is David, right? The one who's going to replace him. 
All right. Thank you very much for your attention.